Hello, friends. My name is Aliza Kelly. I'm a celebrity astrologer, three-time author, and host of this podcast, Stars Like Us. Think of Stars Like Us as your favorite nighttime talk show that just so happens to be released every Monday morning. Each week, we connect with another amazing expert guest, and together we talk about everything under the sun. But before we get into today's episode, take a moment to rate this podcast five stars. Why? Because you're the fucking best. All right, now let's do it. Sit back, relax, and get ready for another out-of-this-world conversation. This is Stars Like Us. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Aliza Kelly, and today I am here with a Cancer Sun and Cancer Moon, which means that our guest is a new moon baby who also happens to have a Sagittarius rising. I am here with Shelly Tagleski, the author of Sit Down to Rise Up, the founder of the global grassroots mutual aid organization, Pandemic of Love. Her work has been featured by over 100 media outlets, including CNN Heroes, The Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. A trauma mindfulness teacher and a Garrison Institute fellow, she has been called one of the 12 powerful women of the mindfulness movement by mindful.org and teaches self-care and resilience at organizations around the world. I have Shelly's book here, Sit Down to Rise Up. I think that our listeners need to know that the forward is by Chelsea Handler. And then also at the top of the book is more praise from, oh, just someone named President Joe Biden, casual. (laughs) But before we turn to you, I want to also share with our listeners a little bit more about what this book is and what your work entails. So a sit down to rise up is organized in three sections, me, we, and us. And each of these sections shed light on this concept of agency, the trouble with positive thinking, what self-care really is, what the power of showing up entails, and how we need to urgently extinguish the stigma attached to asking for help and the support and concept of equity and what mutual aid really is. So it is such an honor to have you here. Um, And I'm so excited to learn about the work that you're doing and what this all means. So thank you, Mm -hmm. Shelly, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So would you mind sharing with uh, our listeners, like catch us all up to speed? How did, how did this all come to be? What were you doing uh, prior to 2020? Um, and then what has changed since then? I guess I'll, I'll, I'll quickly start at the beginning. And if you need any more kind of color <laughs> and you want me to, to give you some more details about something specific, I'm happy to do so. But I was born in Jerusalem. Um, on my father's side, 19th generation born uh, in Jerusalem. My mother's side, a very much, uh, you know, first generation literate woman who, you know, one generation removed from a woman 
in a mountaintop in Baghdad, Iraq, who was airlifted into Jerusalem in 1949. Definitely a lot of intergenerational trauma that I've had to work through throughout my life. But my parents came to the U.S. when I was two years old to New York City and then subsequently moved to uh, Miami, Florida, which my mom liked a lot better than New York City in the 1970s. And um, I grew up in a traditional Sephardic, which means like Middle Eastern, you know, not not Eastern European. So very like traditional Sephardic uh, Orthodox Jewish family. And I grew up in a very, you know, in a bubble, like really in a middle class suburban Jewish bubble. And um, I was really the black sheep of the family. I was the youngest of, uh, you know, older brothers and also was going to a secular school. So I had a lot of confusion about that because my parents couldn't afford to send all of us to Jewish day school. So of course the daughter gets sent to secular school, you know, which was a blessing in disguise for me. Fast forward, you know, I went to undergraduate, was a pre-med student, uh, half of my degree in biology and chemistry, which I do not find useful in any way in my day-to-day <laughs> life. And I wound up uh, as a graduate student at Columbia University in New York City in the, in the 90s, getting a master's of public policy, studying business, and uh, really had this like naivety, you know, uh, which I think a lot of us have when we're young, that we're going to change the world and we're going to make a difference, you know? I realized after I graduated with a lot of student loans that, um, you know, I had to go into the business world to help pay those off for a quote unquote, a few years. I wound up being in the business world for two decades. And um, actually, in spite of myself, I will say rising up in the ranks, rising up in the corporate ladder, and uh, eventually making my way up to being the president and CEO of a, of a mid-sized company with 2,400 employees in 14 markets across the United States. But I had never been more miserable in my life. Uh, you know, I was making more money than I ever made in my life. It was incredibly miserable. And um, I left that world in 2015 to become a full-time mindfulness teacher. Now, that sounds like a huge leap. But uh, what you should know is that I started to meditate in graduate school in the 90s. Meditation was very much a personal practice for me. It was not something I ever thought I'd be teaching to uh, large swaths of of people, but it has brought so much uh, peace and stability, tranquility to my life. I think it's really given me an edge. Um, And I actually think that it, it was what helped me. It was kind of like a superpower that helped me continue to excel in a lot of the pursuits, professional pursuits uh, and communal pursuits as a community organizer and activist. So I I left to really start to turn my attention and focus on just all of the uh, afflictions and the, um, the stress and the turmoil and the strife that I saw happening in the corporate world, thinking that I would be a meditation teacher that, or mindful teacher that goes into the corporate world and teaches. And I wound up actually not doing that at all. I did that for like one day. I went to one client, sat in a boardroom with, you know, around a a table similar to one that I had been at many times before. And I thought, this is not where I belong. Like I left this world and I really need to leave this world. And uh, as luck would have it, the election was around the corner. I was incredibly devastated in 2016 uh, by the election outcome, like many people. And I wound up thrusting my my energy and my time uh, and my entirety to helping social justice organizations 
and political organizers, uh, activists uh, not burn out and use uh, mindfulness and resilience tools to be in it for the long haul because I knew that we were in a marathon and not a sprint. And I was watching people burn out left and right between 2016 and 2020 and still, you know, to this day to some extent. And so really that's, you know, sort of how I got my my start in sort of being the, the mindfulness teacher for activists. And that led me to a lot of different places, like, you know, being from South Florida and having a son that was in high school at the time of the Parkland shooting, I became really involved with the March for Our Lives movement and became very uh, intricately involved with communities affected by gun violence and mass shootings all around the country. Uh, And that's still work that I do to this day. So, you know, when you said, when you mentioned the election in 2016 and sort of anticipating the burnout, you know, obviously the strong emotional reaction for anyone who's listening to this podcast and of fear and concern. And I mean, as I, as I kind of return in my psychic body to 2016, it was, it, the outcome of the election was so bleak and it was also so disconcerting. Mm -hmm. It, It really illuminated a lot that in the previous administration was, you know, it was not as obvious, was not as visible, at least, you know, at that time for me, I was, I had been in college and then moved back to New York City and then was moving, living in Los Angeles. So I was moving through these very, you know, liberal bubbles uh, in, you know, various sort of like arts and culture backgrounds. So Mm -hmm. certainly 2016, and I remember I organized a Planned Parenthood fundraiser, like, you know, that very weekend following right after the election. But you're right. I mean, there was between 2016 and then the following election in 2020, there was a significant amount of burnout, Stockholm syndrome, exhaustion, fatigue. And we haven't even talked about the pandemic yet. Yeah, exactly. But I think that it's interesting to frame and to sort of remind ourselves of what was going on even before there was a global pandemic that just took everything, you know, that really moved everything to the next level, you know, that there was already so much exhaustion and there was already so much burnout that hadn't really been processed collectively prior to something that then was, you know, unprecedented, even beyond belief and even beyond, you know, any politics would, would imagine. Yeah. And I think to, to that point, there's a lot of trauma that's unprocessed at this moment. And at this point that is going to reveal itself and going to show up in many different ways for especially young adults, you know, in this country, right? Like our people that are currently in middle school, high school, and then uh, our, our younger millennials that are, that are trying to get out there and start their lives, you know, in, in the workforce, which I'm sure you could empathize with. But I think that the fact that we as a society have not provided the tools to build uh, pre-zillions and pre-covery, which, is, which are two terms that Dr. Amishi Ja at the University of Miami has come up with. And I love those two terms, but the fact that we as a society, you know, talk so much about resilience, you know, we, we, we prize resilient people and, you know, the bounce back ability of, of individuals, but we don't 
really talk about the, the what needs to happen prior to that. We, it kind of gives people this notion that you're either born as a resilient person or you're not, you know, and it's like inherently encoded in your DNA, which is not really the case. You know, it's something that every person can can actually build to and aspire to have um, that kind of rainy day fund for the times when the proverbial shit hits the fan. Right, right. So what is the prep work for resilience? Well, first of all, uh, I talk a lot about about in the book that it's really about creating a formalized self-care plans for ourselves and understanding exactly what our self-care plans consist of, uh, what our pillars are, and what our obstacles are that get in the way of us enacting those things on a regular basis. And it's mostly about moving away from this notion that self-care plans are individualistic. That the, I understand the term self is in there. So people automatically think, well, self is I, it's the, the, the me that's in this body. But I think you and I can probably both agree that, you know, that I and me that is in this physical body extends far beyond this physical body, right? It's, it emanates, our energy emanates every, every conversation, every interaction that we have with anybody ever past, present that we will have in the future, it completely like sets a different, you know, course for people and and, and a trajectory for ourselves and for others. And so to believe that, you know, it's just the I, the singular I is is erroneous. You know, we have to really start to move into thinking about self-care as a communal pursuit and understand that we are interconnected and intraconnected, meaning that we, we have to rely on each other to build these beautiful safety nets that used to exist years ago, you know, from the clans time period when we, when we, you know, were uh, living in caves as clans and we were nomadic tribes to even um, not so long ago before the industrial revolution, when, uh, you know, people uh, really kind of used their community or their church or their, you know, religious Kind of organizations as as a means to connect as a community and create equity and to create to make sure that everybody in their community had enough right and that we we had this inherently understood moral compass that we were responsible for one another and that if something went wrong in our life somebody would show up for us and and that we are therefore responsible to show up for other people so that's really you know kind of the first part of it the second part is that you know people oftentimes think about meditation and mindfulness really like let's use those terms interchangeably for the purpose of this conversation are tools to use to help us feel more comfortable more comfortable with ourselves more comfortable with uh with our lives with what's happening in our lives and it's actually in my opinion the exact opposite i think that what uh the tools have provided for me at least and and as i've seen for other people is the ability to sit with extreme discomfort and to not react, but rather respond to what's happening in the world, in our lives, that is extremely painful, uncomfortable, just kind of the worst of it. And it allows us to take a step back to almost have that matrix moment and press pause and really think about, even if it's just sort of in a, in a nanosecond, you know, do I go right or do I go left? you know, blue pill or red pill, if you will, 
And so that's been the gift that really, you know, I think meditation has provided for me and being like a meditator for over 20 years, specifically of the loving kindness practice of metta, metta being, you know, uh, an exercise where we cultivate compassion, we open our hearts, expand our empathy towards other human beings in a very real, real way. And what that practice has given me is the ability to now pause, taking that pause, identify what it is that I'm feeling, if it's anger, if it's angst, what's the emotion, right? Labeling it, naming it to tame it, so to speak. And then being able to evolve beyond the fear, evolve beyond that fight, flight, fear mode that we've biologically been ingrained with um, into an empathy action mode, into what scientists are now calling attend and befriend mode. And that's the beauty of it is that, you know, these tools, as I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the first things I said is like meditation has been sort of a superpower for me, you know, and it can be for anyone because it's allowed me to sort of be able to step outside of myself and put on a different lens for many different instances in my life where I was able to see things from a different point of view. I was able to kind of like look ahead, uh, you know, at um, the consequences of certain things. Um, and also, you know, just connect with people in a very different way. And now for, you know, I think that meditation is something that obviously is meditation and mindfulness and the interchangeability of those. I, we, we talk about them often, you know, they are the gateway to a lot of spiritual practices, but I feel like they're very rarely defined yeah, and sure. rarely sort of clarified other than the sort of like in a way, kind of like trope of someone sitting there in lotus pose silently, you know, which mm -hmm. maybe is exactly yeah. how you practice. But I would love to know what it actually looks like from a practical perspective. Yeah. So I would love nothing more than to be able to sit in a uh, quiet place and meditate for, you know, 30 minutes a day uh, or in the morning, be in nature and listen to bird song. And but that's also not reality. For like 99% of people in this, you know, world. Like if I was living in an ashram or if I didn't, again, have a, have a family or have children or have, you know, a house full of people as I'm talking to you from like a sliver next to a closet, right? <laughs> because I needed to find like a space. People think I'm joking, but it's real, you know, that I meditate often and I still do find peace and solace in that environment because when I was a single mom, like it was the only space sometimes that I would have to myself, which was the bathroom floor. Like I would go in and say, Hey, I'm going to the bathroom. And I would take 10 minutes and actually not go to the bathroom at all. Just go there so that I could have space. And even then I would still get notes under the door and knocks on the door. But the re the point of the matter is, is that if you can meditate in those conditions, right, then you could do it anywhere. And so for me, what my practice looks like and what it's looked like for a very long time is, you know, uh, and I'll use an acronym that I was that was bestowed upon me by my good friend David G. RPM, which stands for Rise P Meditate. So you know that already lends itself to you're in the bathroom anyway, so you might as well just squat yourself on the floor after that, lean against the the cupboard or the sink, and and just take those ten minutes for yourself. And so you know that's oftentimes what my practice has to look like because somebody's still sleeping in the house or my husband's already on a zoom call or you know what have you so but the the other part of it that's really important to to tell people and to make sure they understand is that meditation doesn't just live on the cushion 
you know, for me, really meditation lives way more mindfulness lives way more off the cushion than it does on the cushion, because I incorporate several micro practices throughout my day. And, you know, different breathing practices, different arrival practices. So before I actually, you know, move from one activity to the other, I create these like sacred spaces where I can try to kind of reset, recalibrate. And again, that can only take 30 to 60 seconds. It doesn't, I'm not talking about like, I need 10 minutes to like, to do that. Literally like just doing two or three uh, breathing practice cycles that take 16 seconds each or, or less is, is something that can absolutely change the quality of how you show up, how present you are uh, when you are in, in the middle of a conversation or sitting down to write an email or, you know, uh, moving uh, from one conversation to the next. And I think that, you know, people often discount how huge of an impact those tiny little moments can actually have in your life if you're present just for those moments and how it can then therefore affect um, the way that you show up and the quality of how you show up in your life. Yeah. And from a metaphysical perspective, you know, we are always working with microcosms and macrocosms. We're always, every single second is the entirety of your entire existence. So even if you are reclaiming one second to say, I am going to show up 360 degrees as myself, really embodying this 60 second container that becomes the Mm -hmm. the framework for your entire existence should you frame it in this as above so below axiom you know it's everything is always uh, a piece of a whole so even the smaller bits that we can really um be present and conscientious and plugged in for ultimately become the way that we live our life. It is, you know, how we choose to move through those transitional moments is how we live our life. Yeah, exactly. No. And I think that for many of us, it just becomes this sort of white noise. You know, it's like, we're, we're, we feel like our, we've been hijacked. We, we, we're not even like present for those transitional moments. We just kind of move from one thing to the next really rapidly believing that we're great at multitasking. But again, scientists, brain scientists have proven that there is no such thing as multitasking. Your brain cannot possibly do two things at once. You might be really good at switching from one thing to the next, but oftentimes what that leads to is fatigue and uh, the inability to actually be fully present. And that can affect your life beyond multitasking you know, in front of a computer, but actually when you're having a conversation, like how present are you? Are you thinking about something else? When you're walking in nature, are you really communing with nature? And to borrow from um, the late Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, like, are you taking a moment to mindfully walk and allow your feet to kiss the earth, you know, or are you just thinking about your to-do list and what you're right, going right, to eat right. for dinner, you know? And so we miss these beautiful moments in life constantly uh, because we're not there. Like we're physically there, but we're not there. We're not present. I had uh, uh, some major breakthroughs from 2020 to where at the time of this recording, early 2022, relating to, you know, the the significance, the the power of disassociation, um, the role that it has played in my life because of the trauma 
the specific types of trauma that I had endured in my childhood. Why? And on one hand, how it's made me an incredible astrologer, you know, to be able to create entire universes and visualize archetypes in my, you know, cerebral cognitive space, but has totally made it, you know, has made it very difficult for me to stay comfortable and remain in my body. And through, through a variety of different learnings and unlearnings that, you know, really got, were activated in 2020 for me and then have continued to the present and will continue for the rest of my life as a commitment, realizing how much disassociation has prevented me from having uncomfortable Mm. conversations, which has prevented me from growing, which has prevented me from allowing um, to really showing up in the way that other people need me to show up and myself, myself and others. But then when I think again about microcosms and macrocosms, I'm not alone. I'm not the only person who responds to being in uncomfortable environments from childhood or scary things by shutting down and going, you know, becoming very intellectual, but like sort of losing the ability to even tolerate criticism. You know what I mean? But then we have this Mm, insane backdrop of what is going on in the world. Everything is now on our phones. Everything, you know, the way that people leave comments, the way people attack others on the internet, the way we Mm -hmm. scroll mindlessly, and all of that becomes absorbed in our psyche. For me personally, it feels like in my awareness of the chronic disassociation that I've experienced and that is experienced on a societal level, uh, reclaiming that, reintegrating that is uh, is literally against all odds because everything is saying, everything is sort of saying, no, no, disassociate more, be less present, you know, be on, like scroll, flip, swipe, like you know, try to manage the thousands of trolls that are coming into your messages without disassociating, you know? Right. What are your thoughts on all of this? Like, have, have I'm sure that this is also something that is you've experienced uh, either individually or just through your work. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, ha- I like many people, I have a love-hate relationship with social media and with technology in general. For example, I know that um, the 2.1 million people that we've connected directly um, through Pandemic of Love um, over the last two years would would have never happened had it not been for the power of social media to send a message around the world and back, you know, the power of technology to be able to just like connect people who are at a time of disconnection, right? Physical disconnection, but also across cities and, and counties and in state lines. So... For me, it's really just about balance, you know, and it sounds like, oh, you know, here, here we go. You know, this is, seems like such a simple thing to do, but it, no, I, I will say, you know, it's, it's a struggle to keep that balance, you know, the way I approach my life in general, and maybe this is very like, I've, I'm at, now that I'm like thinking it, I'm, I'm speaking it out loud. I'm like, God, that's very like OCD ish, right. In a way that it's like, there's a one-to-one ratio for like a lot of things that I do in my life. So a, a simple example, some tangible examples would be whenever I, you know, hold a workshop, which I always try to, for them to be free, but let's say if it's not free, it's always that Tom's model, that one-to-one, like buy, buy a cushion gift for every person that comes, 
that pays or giving something away for free. There's always that kind of balance. Uh, as it pertains to, for example, my negative self-talk, right? We all have that like little uh, person in your brain that lives rent-free that that tells you that you're not worthy or that you're not enough or that, you know, that I thought was stupid or that action that just happened was inept. And I'm very conscious of that voice. And when, when that voice comes into, you know, my sphere of consciousness, I immediately have like trained myself habitually to say something to counter that. So if I say to myself, God, you're so stupid. I can't believe you just did that. Then I immediately will say something like, but you're, you know, you're really beautiful or you're very generous or you're a kind person or what have you. So I create that balance. And so as it pertains to social media and to, you know, technology, I've sort of kind of managed, I think, to figure out a way to create that balance as well, right? So I'm very conscious of how much time I'm spending on social media. What, how, what am I using it for? I really like if, if you're, if you've ever, you know, been on my Instagram page, for example, which is probably the account that I'm the most active on. I generally speaking only post, you know, my stories when uh, there are families in need with extenuating circumstances. So I feel like, okay, I'm using this platform for good to help other people and to give back, you know, it's not to sell somebody something. I don't, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, if we send you this product, will you, you know, will you promote it or we'll pay you to do this? And I'm like, no, that's not what I do. Like, that's not who I am. It's very inauthentic to who I am. I understand that some people make a living out of doing that, which is fine. Like, I'm, there's no judgment there. But I have chosen to use social media to help other people, to amplify the work that I want to do in the world and to create the world that I want to see, that I envision, that I know can can be manifested and happen because it is happening. Uh, and, you know, in the last two years, we've got, we have so many case studies of a beautiful human connections and interactions that had to take place either in person or on the phone, but there had to be a real tangible connection, not just via, you know, text message or exchange, uh, you know, of emails, but rather full conversations where people got to walk a mile in somebody's shoes, got to put on a different lens, experience, you know, being uh, seen and heard or give the opportunity, you know, have the opportunity to make somebody feel that way. And so, I think it's just an incredibly beautiful way to kind of reclaim our own power versus the power of technology over us. You know, I have a tracker. I think we all do. On, if you, especially if you have an iPhone, you know, on your phone, you can enable that. And there's different apps as well. But if I know that I'm spending, you know, two hours a day on my phone, then I will make sure that I'm spending two hours hiking out in nature or communing without my phone, like putting my phone away, shutting it down and having real FaceTime with the people that matter to me. So let's talk about the pandemic of love. Yeah. What was that initiative? Well, so pandemic of love was, it's so funny because when you watch sort of like, even if you watch a CNN Heroes segment, it makes it seem like I was like this, you know, ditzy house when I was sitting on my kitchen table in, in South Florida. And I uh, just happened to like accidentally start this huge mutual aid organization. And that's really not the story. Very sexy story for sure. It's a, you know, made for TV movie right there. But actually, um, you know, I, since like 2015 was, I had started a meditation community in November of 2015 in South Florida with 12 friends who gathered on a beach to meditate. 
And that meditation community eventually grew to be a 15,000 person community where we would have anywhere from 500, 600, 700 people meditating every Sunday morning on the beach together, which was an incredible, incredible, um, you know, experience, and which obviously stopped and ceased um, to, in person uh, when the pandemic started. During those years, those five years pre-pandemic, you know, you get to know people, you get to know their stories and their struggles and their strifes and what they're going through, whether it's, um, you know, financially, whether it's medically, whether it's, you know, emotionally or, or psychologically. And so really, we had this sort of closed circuit mutual aid organization within our community. You know, if somebody needed a ride, we would let people know and people, somebody would bring that person to the beach. If somebody just lost their husband, the community would be there for them. If somebody just got diagnosed with cancer, you know, and so on and so on. If somebody lost their job, we would help them find a job. We would make sure that they were financially okay. And it was this beautiful kind of um, redistribution of wealth, wealth being defined very loosely, not just as it pertains to money, but time, energy, you know, resources, et cetera. And so Pandemic of Love was born uh, out of this idea that, you know, to bring it back kind of full circle to what we we're talking about with respects to mindfulness and tend and befriend and the empathy action mode. I was very present to the fact that I was like probably everybody in this world feeling fear and feeling, um, you know, this fear of the unknown and what's going to happen and how are people going to survive? Like I started thinking about the people in our community that we're barely making ends meet as it was, you know, and living hand to mouth and relying on tips and hourly wages and worked in the hospitality industry. And here we are going into shutdown. And I was like, how are they going to feed their kids when they rely on free breakfast and lunch at the schools? That's 10 meals a week that they have to now provide to, to three children. And, and, you know, this person might be a single mom, right? So as I started to feel this, you know, fear and drop into that, I recognized that, um, I had the power to do something about it. And and so this is again where you know the evolution of sort of using the tool of mindfulness and meditation is I always ask once I'm in a place where I'm really present with my emotions and I recognize them and I'm able to sit with them and label them I move beyond that and I and I ask myself two follow-up questions and those are the first question is okay you know I'm feeling this and what am I going to do about it? And the follow-up question is, and how do I come from a place of love? And the answer of what am I going to do about it has to be tangible, right? It's not, it can't be like, you know, well, I'm not going to think about it anymore. I'm going to let it go. Like, that's abstract. That's stop, you know? <laughs> like when people say, just let it go. I'm like, no, stop. But, but it has to be something really tangible. And so here I am sitting with my fear and despair and angst and et cetera. And now I'm thinking, and what am I going to do about it? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I make it comfortable for the people who are in need right now and freaking out probably more than I am to ask for help, make it really easy for them and create a form, an intake form called the get help form. They're going to identify what it is that they need very, in a very, very tangible way. And then I'll create another form called give help. Uh, where the people in our community that have enough or more than enough can fill those needs for those individuals. And I'll just basically make the connection and step out of the way, right? The intent was never to like create a nonprofit and to have uh, money coming into a central account and redistributing. Cause I also knew that at a time of disconnection, 
when we couldn't see each other and people were in isolation and some people, especially in Florida, where like everybody's, you know, grandma and grandpa go to like retire. We had a lot of elderly people in our community as well that were alone, like literally alone and very scared. And so it was a perfect opportunity to connect people in a really tangible way and make sure they had to have a conversation in order to transact. And, um, and that created a lot of friendships. And so fast forward to where we are today with through Pandemic of Love, which is still going strong, is as I mentioned earlier, we've made 2.1 million connections. Those connections have directly transacted between them over $61 million in 280 communities across 16 countries. Um, and, you know, it's really a testament to the fact that, you know, one person can do something to, to change the world and make it better. And I think that sometimes we feel like the problems of the world are so daunting. Again, we're in freeze mode and we're like, well, what can I do? I'm one person. And, you know, I call bullshit on that, actually, because you can do something. You can do something to affect, as a Buddhist proverb would say, tend to the area of the garden that you can reach. So what's the area of your garden that you can reach? Why are you so busy looking at your neighbor's garden or the far corner that you'll never get to? If you could just make your garden bloom, your community, however you define your community, whether it's just the people living in your household, whether it's the five people you work with on a daily basis, whether it's your, you know, your five closest friends or the people who live on your floor in your building, what have you, what, however you define your community, if you just make sure that everybody there has enough, is doing okay, and has uh, the capacity to thrive because they're no longer worried about surviving. And if everybody did that in this world, the world would look so much different, right? And we feel so hopeless. We feel so helpless, but we're not. We have so much power. I think part of the affliction of really like social media and, and the detriment of it is that, you know, we see, um, you know, these sort of reels of people doing these big lofty things, you know? And so we think, oh, well, if it doesn't, if it's not real worthy, if it's not going to go viral, then it's not worthy of like being done. And that's honestly not the case. We are all capable of throwing every single day so many pebbles into the proverbial pond. And um, not just to create ripples of influence, but actually those, a lot of those ripples will eventually become huge waves and change a lot. I love it. It's, it's really inspiring. I think that it really feels empowering to imagine how, you know, I, a, a friend of mine, Veronica Varlow, who's just a brilliant witch, when her book came out uh, a few weeks, months ago, she was talking about how she only was offering signed copies when it came out at a specific local bookshop in Brooklyn because the energy of where we, you know, where we spend our money is energy and mm -hmm. we, it matters, you know, what we do with our choices matter. And when we allow ourselves to have the confidence yeah. and the bravery to know that we matter individually, then we can start to feel, to recognize that our decisions that are small matter as much as our decisions that are large and the large decisions are often the amalgamation of many, many small decisions that have all mattered all along the way. So it's not just about those big milestone moments, you know, that we have what, let's say like 
two, three dozen in a lifetime. You know, those moments where you're like, wow, it's the interview that's going to change my life. It's the move that's going to change my life. It's the partner that's going to change my life. But it's actually everything that even allowed you to be in that crossroads of that choice was the byproduct of every single small gesture that that you made throughout a single day, you know? Yeah. And that others made toward you, right? And that we do towards others. Like, you know, you oftentimes hear, especially when people are talking about mental health, like, you know, just making somebody feel like they matter or just, you know, somebody who feels unseen, you know, saying something like, ah, you have such a beautiful smile or, you know, you have great eyes to a stranger or, you know, just making somebody feel seen in a moment can literally change the trajectory of their life. That small gesture that you're talking about. That is so beautiful. So this feels like a really good transition to ask uh, the first of the two questions that I ask every guest on this podcast, which is how does magic show up in your life? Oh, magic shows up in my life every single day. I mean, magic is, is all around us, right? You know, I suffer from a, an autoimmune condition that causes a blindness and I'm blind in my left eye and I'm, you know, working on not being blind in my right eye. When I got that diagnosis over 20 years ago, it was actually a gift for me. Uh, it was a real gift in the sense that it helped me see things in a very different light, literally see things in a different light, right? And be more present. And so there's magic all around us if we just open our eyes you know, to it. When I look at the way that uh, my husband's laugh lines you know, crinkle up, and I kind of study them, there's magic there. When I look at my mom's you know, face and her, her wrinkles and, and all the wisdom of her years, there's magic there. When I look at the way the sunlight hits my son's eyelashes, there's magic there. Uh, and so on. So, you know, there is magic all around us. And I feel every single day that I am in a completely spiritual, magical environment because I said it it was so, and I believe it is so. So then follow-up question. Uh, I say this thing called tank, which means there are no coincidences. So here's the tank for the follow-up question, which is what do you believe in? I believe in love. That's it. I believe that um, we are all sentient beings who are connected to each other that we are all, um, we've been interconnected for uh, millennia since the beginning of time, whatever, whenever, however you define time and space. And I believe that the, the only thing that connects us uh, truly and that will heal us and that will solve the problems in this world uh, is love. Well, I would love to pull a card for you if you are receptive to that. Sure, absolutely. So the way that my deck is happiest is when we work off of a question. If we pull a general card, the deck might say, give us something very strange and nebulous. And then we're going to have to, I'm going to have to leave (laughs) you with like a awkward, like, well, I guess go figure this out for yourself. So the more specific the question, the more that we the deck is going to give us a specific answer. So do you have a specific question that is current in your life right now that we could use a single card to give us some beautiful mystical illumination? So I'm currently living a nomadic life. You know, after I left Florida in July of 2020, uh, my husband and I have been in several different really beautiful locations, but we, you know, haven't found the place where we want to settle, where we want to throw roots down again. And so I guess my question is in relation to that, like, are we going to find the place 
that we need to be? Or are we going to just completely continue to be rolling stones for the rest of our lives? Well, I guess my question for you before I even ask the deck is, is the intention to find a rooted place? Yeah, the intention is definitely, you know, listen, at some point, uh, you know, my husband's in his mid mid 50s, like I'm, you know, approaching 50 as well. And so, you know, you start to think about as you see your parents aging and uh, some, you know, my, my husband's father passed away last year. And so you start to think about, yeah, at some point, you're going to need to have like a home base, you know, so yeah, the intention is absolutely to um, eventually have a place that we feel is, is it, it's home. It's, it's where, it's where we want to be. So if the intention is to find that rooted place, then instead of asking, will you, I think I'm going to ask, what should you know about that rooted place? Love it. Does that sound good? Yeah, that's a great reframe. Thanks. Okay. So do you want me to work with pile one, pile two, or pile three? Uh, two. Great. All right. So let's see, what should we know about this rooted place? What is the wisdom that we can glean through this card that is going to give us uh, insight into what that looks and feels like and how we can even identify it? This is an interesting card to pull. So we pulled the three of swords. Mm. So this card is, uh, you know, it's so interesting. Like, you know, we could tack on probably another 30 minutes now (laughs) to the podcast, but we're not going to. But I find it fascinating to pull this card when what you believe in is love. And this card is one of the most, I mean, it's one of the most visually striking cards of this traditional deck. Um, it is the only card that has a heart, you know, the symbol of love and that's being punctured three ways. And it has a lot to do with resilience, brokenheartedness, you know, and just the capacity of healing, Mm -hmm. right? Healing love. Like what does love look like in when it is whole and what does love look like also when there are wounds? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I guess the interpretation of this is there is complex and is myriad and probably would ask us to pull even more cards to clarify. But for the sake of this card as its own container, maybe the rooted place is potentially it's a place that you've already been that has already that's a place that there is already memories that might make it feel like it's a difficult one to return to because Mm -hmm. you want it to be a fresh environment. But this is a place that has already, that the heart has already felt and it is a returning and then a a reclaiming of that environment and region coming from a different sort of heart-led approach than how it has been in the past. Perhaps there is some sort of spiritual disappointment of like, I wanted it to be everything and more. And it's, you know, I'm making all of these, I have to make all of these like compromises because it's not the sanctuary that I had imagined it could be. But this is also the most logical and practical and important place for us to establish. But I feel like I'm being pulled to that first interpretation of it being a place that maybe you're afraid to come back Mm -hmm. to, but it also being the place that makes sense. Interesting. We shall see. You have to keep me posted. I will. Definitely. But it does feel, you know, it it feels meaningful to get this card when you believe in love. And I feel like there's just a lot of really juicy imagery and symbolism that can be unpacked from that. Love. 
That's great. So my dear, where can we find you? Where can we connect with you? And how can we continue to, and for those who also want to participate uh, in this mutual aid network, where will they go? So if you need help or if you want to give help, you just go to pandemicoflove.com. It's such a simple website to navigate. Uh, if you're interested in even kind of going a step beyond and starting a micro chapter in your community, um, there are tools and resources as well on the website for that. Um, my website is shellytogelski.com, which is impossible to pronounce and spell. So if you just type in Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y, and my, the first letters of my last name, which is T-Y-G, it'll come up. There's very few of us Tegelskis out there. Really, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm most active on Instagram and my handle is Mindful Skater Girl, which is a lot easier to remember and spell. And that's a whole conversation for another time. But Mindful Skater Girl, and I, um, as I mentioned, I post and highlight stories of connection, stories of families that are in need and there's so many different ways to help. Um, it's, again, not just financial. You know, you might have an old computer or laptop lying around. You may have baby clothes that you're willing to ship somewhere. You may be willing to pick up the phone and give your time to a senior. Or you might be willing to buy something off somebody's Amazon wish list. So there's always amazing opportunities to be able to do something kind in the world to create a, that beautiful ripple effect that we talked about. Um, and so I hope you'll, uh, you'll join me and you'll join our community of care. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. 